Welcome to the Life Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church based in North Dallas with a desire to help people love God, love people, and make a difference. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. So, where are we so far? Well, on, on Palm Sunday, Brother Sergeant single-handedly... Few people got that. Um, Brother Sargent single-handedly covered the start with the story of Mary. He would love that joke for the record. I want to be clear. He would love that joke. Some of you are judging me so harshly, but he would laugh. Um, But we covered the story of Mary and Palm Sunday celebration as Jesus rode into town on a donkey. Pastor Matt walked us through Judas' part in the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. And tonight, I'm going to continue that story by, by turning to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me. You don't have to stand. You've been standing a little bit here. But Matthew 27, starting at verse number 1, and we're going to read 1 and 2 and then skip down to verse 11. It says, When morning came... All the the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now Jesus stood, this is verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so, which is just a great mind game. Always down for a good mind game. Uh, But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. I want to talk just a little bit about the senator and the scapegoat. You know, before we really get into our text today, We're reading there in Matthew 27. That's actually talking about the second trial of Jesus. But to get there, we first need to understand a little bit about the first trial of Jesus. In Matthew 26, we see Jesus came before Caiaphas and the council with false testimony brought about him. After every accusation, Caiaphas would ask Jesus his response and he stayed silent. You know, I've heard it once said that a man with experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. He knew who he was. He had no need to justify it. And so he did not give a response. And honestly, this is not unfamiliar in scripture. We've seen this before. You may recall the story of Joseph. And when he was accused by Potiphar's wife, he did not answer. He didn't have to answer because he knew his innocence, so he offered no defense. Character in time will prove itself. It will prove itself. But finally, the chief priest, or the bishop, if you will, he said to him in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 65 actually tells us that Caiaphas tore his robe, which due to uh, Jewish tradition, that actually meant he was removing himself from the priesthood by law. He tore his robe. Why would he react so strongly to the words of Jesus? A, Jesus knew how to push the right buttons. But secondly, there is more to that one sentence that Jesus said. 
It's a statement, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So does this literally mean that Jesus is sitting beside God in heaven? No. John 4, 24 tells us that God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so a spirit doesn't have facial features. A spirit doesn't have hands or legs or a body. But all throughout scripture, the right hand of God or the right hand of power is referenced. And it's not only to Jesus. In Exodus 15, we read, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand shattered the enemy. In Psalms 110, we read, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Ephesians 1 and 20 says, God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places or even on his right hand in the heavenly places for above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So no, it's not referencing a literal right hand. It's referencing the right hand of power. That is authority, power in God's right hand. That's that dominant hand, the dominant hand. And Jesus stands up in the court and says, from now on, you'll know me as the representation of the power of God. Why do you think we put such an emphasis on the name of Jesus in church? It's because in Jesus, there is power. In his name, there is freedom and deliverance and salvation. But Jesus also said to Caiaphas, and coming on the clouds in heaven, which is telling the priest, not only am I all power, Not only can you only be saved through me, but the one who was promised to you, that Messiah, I'm him. You've been wondering this whole time who I am. I'm telling you, I am God. I am all power. I am the one who was promised. And when you pray for God to come and save you, I am the one to come. To these church leaders, that was straight blasphemy. That was beyond all reason that he would say something like that. And so because of that, it says they spit in his face, his face, and they hit him and they beat him. To back up just a second, let me rephrase that. The chief priest, the bishop, the preachers, and the church leaders spit in his face. They hit him and they beat him. They sent him to Pontius Pilate. Talk about an untold story. We, we very rarely reference that much about him. You know, you know the thing about he washed his hands of him and that we don't really say a lot sometimes, but he's mentioned in all four accounts of the gospel. And we, here's what's really interesting. Not only is he mentioned in the four accounts, he's actually very much established throughout history, more than just what the word of God says about him. Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of the Roman province of Judea, serving under Emperor Tiberius from the year 26 to 37 AD. He was considered moderately successful, though in the end he lost his governorship due to the mishandling of a Samaritan uprising. Historians are divided on whether or not Pilate was actually good or bad. Some truly believe that he was an anti-Semite, And while others say that he didn't love or hate the Jews, he honestly was just a politician. Regardless, it was Pilate who handled the second trial of Jesus. And it is generally assumed, based on the unanimous testimony of the Gospels, that the crime for which Jesus was brought to Pilate and executed for was sedition. 
founded on his claim to be king of the Jews. And so Pilate may have judged Jesus according to a Latin form of trial for capital punishment used in the Roman provinces and applied to non-Roman citizens that provided the prefect with greater flexibility in handling the case. Pilate goes on to ask many questions of Jesus, who again does not respond. Seeing no fault in Jesus, he sends him to Herod, King Herod who, much like Pilate, asks a bunch of questions and gets no answer from him and sends him back to Pilate because he too cannot find him guilty. He doesn't find him innocent, but he doesn't find him guilty. In Luke 23, starting at verse 13, we read, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city And for murder. If we now move back to Matthew in 27, starting at verse 15, it says, Now at the feast, uh, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? And they did not answer him. And they said, shouted all the more, let him be crucified. You know, Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus. His wife, tormented by dreams, warned him not to crucify Jesus. And he tried to circumvent the situation with the bait and switch by offering up someone in his place. He thought, surely if I offer up this really bad guy over here and we have a supposedly accused bad guy over here, surely they'll still want this kind of bad guy and not the really bad guy. It was a political maneuver. He knew he needed to keep peace with the Jews to appease the emperor. He did not need the Jews to uprise against him. It wasn't a bad ploy. He picked the most despicable person he could to present opposite of Jesus. Barabbas, history tells us, was a zealot. He had killed and stolen in an attempt to create an insurrection against the Romans. And surely the crowd would choose the innocent Jesus over the violent Barabbas. Barabbas. What a name. You know, some origin writings of Matthew actually note that his name was actually Jesus Barabbas. The original version of Matthew included that in, that though his, his name, he was often called by Jesus. Many scholars agree that this was Barabbas' full name. If his personal name was Jesus in itself, that's not improbable. It was actually a very pro- popular name at that time. 
But it made Pilate's offer more pointed. Do you want Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Christ? Or more specifically, do you want Jesus of men or the Jesus of heaven? But the people chose Barabbas over Jesus. And in the end, they asked Pilate to crucify him. In Matthew 27, starting at verse 24, it says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, he was was saying things back and forth and nothing was mattering, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I find it really interesting that he chose to still scourge Jesus after saying, I do not find him guilty. Again, he didn't say I find him innocent per se, but he said, I don't find him guilty. And he said, I wash my hands of this, but then he turned around and he had him scourged. Now, the act of replacing one prisoner for another is said in all four accounts of the Gospels to be common practice. But I'm going to be honest, I'm someone who likes to always back up something Scripture says with history. What, what, What do scholars say about that? Matthew 27, 15, again, it said, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Interestingly enough, the, any commentary that I've read on this subject refers to it as the only recorded instance of this being done. Most likely it was from Roman descent, they assume, and said that it probably happened before um, Pilate was put in place, and they're not really sure when it ended, but there's not any other account in historical record than Scripture about that. But interestingly enough, The Jewish scholars feel about it very differently. They connect it to something completely separate from Roman law, from something that was just a habit that they did. They attribute it instead to the Day of Atonement, or what maybe you've heard as Yom Kippur. See, back in the Old Testament in Leviticus, Aaron's two sons passed away. And at that time, the chief priest um, was only supposed to go into the Holy of Holies so many times a year. It hadn't really been defined at that moment, but he wasn't supposed to go in a lot. And Aaron chose to go in almost daily because of the grief and the pain that he was feeling. And in, in Leviticus 16, starting at verse five, God, I'm sorry, God, before that, God spoke to Moses and he said, He can't be going into the Holy of Holies every day. We got to stop this. He's going to hurt himself. He's going to die, basically. He can't be that close to the true uh, nature of God that much or he will actually die. And so in verse five, it says, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And then he shall take the two goats 
and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. That word that is weird to say literally means scapegoat. Scapegoat. This was, there was the goat for the Lord, which was used as a sin offering, and then there was the scapegoat. The priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat on his head and would confess upon it all of the transgressions and the sins of the children of God and all their iniquities they had done, and then would send it out into the wilderness where it would bear unto itself all of their sins." This is an, there is an interesting parallel here at play in the New Testament with the Day of Atonement. Where Jesus actually has played both goats. You see, Jesus came to John the Baptist in Matthew 3. And at the time, John baptized unto repentance or atonement. And Jesus came to John to be the scapegoat. And in Matthew 4, we see he is then sent into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. But while Jesus was tempted, he did not give in because he is without blame. And now there was a day of atonement for the Jews. And and, and when they drew lots this time, Jesus was the sin offering and Barabbas was the scapegoat. Barabbas was released into the wild, but Jesus was the sin offering for all people. Barabbas, the criminal, was released, and Pilate, who isn't the Christ follower and sympathizer he is sometimes made out to be, he found Jesus innocent of the crime he was accused of, but only because Jesus wouldn't say again the things he had said before. He washed his hands of the matter, not because of his belief in Jesus' innocence, but because as any politician would, he didn't want to be blamed if the people changed their mind. He could say, no, 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 you chose Barabbas and you crucified Jesus. I washed my hands of it. So what's the point? What is is the point of the stories of Pilate and Barabbas being included here in this Easter story. The the final portion of the Easter story, that'll be preached on Friday and, and Easter Sunday. But tonight, how do we respond? Imagine that you were there for the trial of Jesus. You were given the lofty task of being his defending attorney. You'd look for those to put on the stand as witnesses, some enemies maybe even, and some friends. You would look and you would say, I've got to figure out how to prove that Jesus is innocent. Because it doesn't matter if he is innocent or guilty. If the other side does a better job, he can become 
known as guilty. So maybe first you start with some Pharisees. You call them up and, and they, they, they say he sat with sinners and he dined with them. He was a sinner's best friend. Maybe it was the mob at the cross. They would say, well, he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. King Herod, this man is not worthy of death. The centurion, truly, this was the son of God. And even Judas, as Pastor Matt talked about a couple nights ago, I have betrayed innocent blood. But then maybe also you'd call some friends of Jesus. You'd go find that guy. He used to be blind. He used to sit and beg on the side of the streets. Poor, helpless little blind man. And he would come in and he would say, I once was blind, but now I see. Maybe John the Baptist who could say, I am not worthy to latch his shoes. Mary Magdalene, I have truly seen the Lord. Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So, what'd you do? What have, what have you done recently? Have you washed your hands of the blame of Jesus Christ? He didn't wash his blame, his hands from the blame of yours. No, he took your blame on. And instead of looking as Pilate did and finding you innocent, Jesus looked at you and saw your guilt. And instead of choosing another, because another that is perfect does not exist, he chose us. Instead of letting us be the scapegoat, he was the sacrificial lamb dying for all our sin. And on that day, the people who had been healed by Jesus, the people that walked with him, they yelled out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And on that day, the people who walked with Jesus with no fear of what he would do or say yelled out, Give us Barabbas! We want Barabbas! And on that day, the sinners who ate and sat with Jesus despite what they had done and who they were. The people who were the strong followers of the law and turned their back on Jesus, they yelled out, His blood will be on us and our children. God, full of grace, died on a cross for His people who showed Him no grace. If you can stand with me, please. So tonight, we have a choice 
in how to respond. Not by what you say or how many times you've been to church this week or this month, maybe even this year. But what have your actions shown Jesus? Have you washed your hands in part? Have you played a part in his death? Have you chose someone or something else of obvious sin over the innocent hands of Jesus Christ? What is your scapegoat? What is it that you are allowing to get away? Have you ignored the dreams, the signs, the warnings of others to live the life you desire over the life that he desires? I'd like to think that that on that day, standing there, hearing the trial and seeing that it was being forced on Jesus, something that he was not was, he, he was not. I'd like to think that being there on that day and Pilate standing up and saying, I see no fault in this man. I'd like to think that I would have the right rationale to recognize that this man is innocent, that this man is truly the king of the Jews, that this man truly is the king of all kings, that this man truly is fully God and fully man walking on earth to recognize that he was the Messiah. He was the Savior sent for every one of us. But I'd also like to think that there was not there was not one who felt that way because in the end Jesus needed to die on the cross Jesus had to be the sin offering otherwise you and I would never have had the opportunity to allow him to die and take on our sin while I would like to think that my heart would be pricked in that moment and I would recognize who he was and what he had done for me, the sad truth is that even some of his disciples turned his back on him. Even the people who followed him and knew who he was betrayed him. They cursed him. And as much as I'd like to think that I don't do that myself, the fact of the matter is, when I choose me, I choose things, I choose the world over him, I am choosing in that moment to not accept what he did on the cross for me. I am choosing in that moment to say, I wash my hands of this. Jesus, you didn't have to die because of me. I'm good. Like I'm figuring stuff out on my own. I don't need you. I'm going to wash my hands of you. But the sad fact is that Pilate washed his hands and it did not matter because they were covered in blood and he was full of sin. And yet, Christ still died 
for him. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you were inspired by today's sermon. Connect with the Life Church through our website, TLCDallas.com, and on Facebook and Instagram at TLC Dallas. Remember, together we can love God, love people, and make a difference. God bless.